And as I was saying, you know, you saw a UFO in 1950, and basically you kept your mouth shut. And maybe that's also true if you're a commercial pilot today. But for the rest of us now, uh, we don't need our UFO abduction insurance uh, to protect us against all the uh, all the uh, mental maligning that we'll in- encounter. It's a fairly open subject. And there actually is a Center for UFO Studies, cufos.org. And Mark Rodiger has been president and scientific director there since 1986. Thanks for joining us, Mark, on WGN Radio. Hey, good evening, Raleigh. Thanks for the chance to be on and speak with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated about this, and I think that most uh, most people would agree, other than those who are so uh, hardcore set against this can't possibly be uh, be reality. And with that in mind, if this were prior to Roswell, certainly, uh, if if people were to talk about this, there might be a lot of people in the room who were set, dead set against it. At this point in time, how open is the general public to saying, yeah, I've seen a UFO, or I'm aware of them, or, you know, they happen? Uh, as you said just a moment ago, much more so than uh, years ago. You know, when I first got involved in the field, and it was before 86, when I volunteered at the center, and, and uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek was, was still alive and running it, um, it was much more common to hide your interest and certainly uh, not can reveal the fact that you'd had a sighting with even your family, uh, let alone uh, announce that to the public. Uh, but nowadays, yeah, people don't uh, r- rarely feel ill at ease uh, it, talking about it, uh, admitting things about it, and yes, even saying that they've had a sighting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you earned a B.S. in astrophysics from IU in 1975, and I can imagine at that time, had this topic been brought up in some of these classes, you would have had professors that were ready to club you for even discussing this. Uh, I actually did, because I, uh, <laughs> by then I, I had just volunteered at the center, and I uh, managed to get the university through like the student union to have Dr. Heine come down and give a lecture. Oh. Um, and that was, you know, you could do that. It was through the student union, not the, the uh, astrophysics department. Uh, but, of course, they found out, I, you know, I was, like, behind that. And that didn't go over too well. Oh, I'll bet. I, I would love to see that. Now, more interestingly, after going over to England and, and studying, you got your M.A. and Ph.D. from University of Illinois at Chicago in sociology. And, you know, you might on, on the surface say, well, those are two divergent topics. But when you're talking about UFOs, astrophysics and sociology go hand in hand yes that's that's exactly right i um i didn't plan that uh you know from the word go that that switch in uh, in topics and switch in careers but it has worked out very well um and uh you know because uh later on in the 90s uh, i and a couple of other colleagues studied uh, abductees um and we studied the psychology and sociology of them um and uh, so yes I, i've used both areas in my academic background, uh, and you need to do that, and even more so, uh, to fully study the phenomena. Well, you're the only person I know who actually used his dissertation. Uh, Factors influencing attitude toward controversial research, quantitatively disentangling the social from the scientific. That just goes right to the heart of what you do. Yes, that uh, dissertation was in the. Uh, I'm impressed that you actually looked it up and know the uh, title. Uh, is the uh, that the um, uh, it's in the sociology of science, and uh, sociologists of science uh, study how science is done. 
uh, or in my case, how science is not done. Because uh, scientists, even today, at least the, the vast majority of them, still um, reject the study of the subject. And so while certainly there are uh, many, many who have, or at least a, a reasonable number who, who studied it, and a lot more that have a closeted interest, um, the mainstream scientific community still feels that the, the study of the subject uh, is essentially verboten. Yeah, yeah, and laughable, obviously. And the only thing that I know for sure scientifically is that, assuming that they're coming here from God knows where, they're not going the long way, or they'd still be traveling. So what fascinates me is not, are they here? How did they get here? Um, That's generally true, but, you, you know, people have talked now about artificial intelligence and something called the singularity. Mm-hmm. Um, and how someday we'll be able to upload our minds into mm-hmm. a combination biological and you know technological uh, being or entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some have theorized, and not just in the UFO community, that um, aliens could in fact use um, you know the co- a combination of a biological and an artificial intelligence to explore the galaxy. And if that's the case. Or, or even just simply robotic machines that are intelligent, then time is less relevant, and you can travel faster than the speed of light and get here from there. But if you are uh, most likely, if, if you're strictly biological, then yes, it would seem like uh, that, that hard speed limit just makes it too lengthy to get here. Well, the long way, and so I would contend that there are shortcuts that we don't understand yet. Uh, that's possible. You know, there, there are people that have, have uh, speculated, of course, on wormholes. The Alcubierre Drive is a, is a paper by a, a fellow with that name who's talked about that if you have almost unbelievable amounts of energy, you can, uh, in fact, travel through a wormhole to somewhere distant in the, uh, in the universe, not just the galaxy. Um, it, it is certainly true that science has advanced continuously, and um, what people think at one time is later... Um, is is later uh, altered by what people either learned or theorize or discover, you know, another 50 years later. Um, so I think it's quite possible. Now, it's interesting that we have several people over the last several decades that have come forth with stories of being abductees, uh, some farcical, some not, uh, but I haven't yet found anybody who had a scientific background who had encountered something like this. And by the way, I'm not saying that they haven't. Maybe those are the people who aren't coming forth. But it would be fascinating to hear a story from somebody who understood astrophysics who also had an encounter. Anything like that? Um, well, the um, a couple of things. One of the first abduction cases I looked into uh, was a fellow with a, uh, a science degree. Uh, he was a, uh, just a graduated from college, but uh, it happened, the first uh, experience he remembered happened when he was driving back from central Illinois, having visited his girlfriend. Um, and he had a, uh, what you'd call a classic abduction experience uh, when he pulled his car over to the road, up uh, from the side of the road, uh, really inexplicably. Um, and then they was approached by little beans and taken aboard a UFO. Um, secondly, Carrie uh, Mullis is a, a well-known researcher in the in the uh, area of DNA and all that. And he had you can read about this experience online. A, a, 
extremely bizarre experience, maybe more bizarre than aliens, if you can, if you can imagine that, because he saw and talked with a raccoon. Yeah. And this raccoon, though, he thought was a screen memory. A screen memory of, yes, potentially an abduction. And th- this is the fellow who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry? That is correct. Uh-huh. I, I think it was a little, I shouldn't be quite that quick, but he, 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 is, uh, he may have won the Nobel Prize. He certainly is, um, you know, incredibly honored um, and uh, a top-notch researcher. Died about a year ago in Newport Beach? Uh, I think that's the guy. Yeah, that's our guy. All right. Yeah. So, and I know that he briefly had left uh, the science community to write fiction, but even so, talking to a raccoon. All right. Well, you know, that, that threw me. And so we'll, we'll get into that. Why not? In the meantime, I suggest you get into the Center for UFO Studies. You can go to cufos.org. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. All right. So we are talking about uh, UFOs. And uh, I was just uh, talking with Mark Rodiger, and still am, by the way. And you can join in the conversation anytime. 888 UFOS.org is the website, but we were talking about uh, Carrie Mullis, who died last year, and yes, he uh, he did absolutely uh, get uh, a Nobel Prize in chemistry. Uh, he also publicly admitted that uh, that some of uh, his uh, uh, his insights came from the use of uh, of well LSD, and in fact helped him devo- develop um, the polymerase chain reaction that amplifies specific DNA sequences, but but he says no, he was not at all on LSD. At the time, he had an encounter with, quote, a standard extraterrestrial raccoon. This begs a question, and I'll ask Mark Rodinger, a standard, huh? What, what would be uh, a, an outstanding <laughs> raccoon? I mean... Well, the, you know, the non-standard ones, of course, are usually albino. Oh, is that it? Oh, well, yeah, that's the difference, Raleigh. I I had been curious, but it makes all the sense in the uh, in the world. Yeah, so. this was this the standard ones look just like a raccoon, except of course those who are experts can see that they're extraterrestrial. Well, absolutely, and it was in in the woods in Northern California around midnight in 1985. And as I say, he's uh, vehemently demi- uh, denied being on psychedelic drugs. Do we have any idea what the raccoon had to say? Um, you know, I was, uh, I don't recall that, and I, I don't think that, uh, he himself, I was looking around, uh, as usual on the internet while, uh, you were doing the, uh, the commercial break there, and I, uh, can't quite find the details. Uh, I think it actually, it, there, there, there weren't many, uh, and that it, is, is it a typical experience like this? That, uh, you know, he knows, he knows it happened, but there was like missing time. Um, the, I, I, oh, there we go. Yes, the the raccoon said, "Good evening, doctor." The, the next, well, what else would you say to a right. PhD exactly. who was a Nobel Prize winner, right? What else? Yeah. Uh, the next thing I remember, I'm now quoting from uh, his account. It was early in the morning. Ooh. I was walking along a road uphill from my house. Went what went through my head as I walked down toward my house was, "What the hell am I doing here?" I had no memory of the night before. I thought maybe I had passed out and spent the night outside. But nights are damp in the summer in Mendocino, and my clothes were dry and they weren't dirty. Ooh. Uh, most, uh, most accounts aren't quite that controversial, but missing time does seem to be a key ingredient, doesn't it? Yes, and in that sense, um, his experience is consonant with, uh, with most experiences of people who say they've had an abduction, like the fellow 
whose first name was Robert, who I uh, mentioned earlier, who was driving in central Illinois. Um, in fact, he came to the center, and, and uh, we did a hypnotic uh, sessions with him because he had said that I know something happened to me. In fact, I found uh, what he thought were marks on his body caused by the experience, um, even though this, this was some years later, but it had troubled him. He had had dreams where he thought he remembered fragments of the experience, and he was was quite troubled about it. Uh, many people are, for whatever the reason for the experience and the source of it, it does bother them. And so he wanted to, you know, get to the bottom of it, as it were, and see if we could help him discover uh, what did happen. There have been a few books written about this that detail accounts of actually quite a lot of people over the years. But what I find interesting is now you go to Roswell and the entire town is about UFOs. And this happened in 1947, and they didn't really get actively interested in this till about 1980. So what caused the sudden interest after all those years? The, uh, the, there's a mistaken impression uh, among uh, you know people, mostly because of uh, television programs and the like, that uh, Roswell was a big deal back in 1947, and it, it was a big deal for about four hours right. uh, until the military squashed the story. Um, and so, in the late 1970s, a fellow named Jesse Marcel, who was the mm-hmm. uh, intelligence officer at the base. Um, was discovered, uh, as it were, by Stan Friedman, a very well-known UFO investigator who uh, died recently. Um, And uh, Jesse and and Stan met in Louisiana, where where he lived, um, and uh, he told him the story about what had happened in 1947. Okay. Uh, Stan, go ahead. I'm going to leave uh, Jesse there, who is a key player, I guess, in promoting, uh, maybe uh, inadvertently, Roswell, and we'll pick it up right there. But... Ah, time for the half-hour news. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, and we're talking about, well, not so much about extraterrestrial uh, raccoons, but but certainly about UFOs. And we uh, we got to uh, Jesse Marcel and uh, being interviewed in the late, late 70s. And our guest, by the way, and this is just a fascinating website, too, I want to mention, but Mark Rodiger, and it is cufos.org. Org, and it was uh, J. Allen Hynek, Dr. Hynek, who started this, and he's nothing if not fascinating as well, and we'll get to him, but we'll pick up uh, uh, Marcel, and the first question, of course, uh, who found him to interview him in 1978? You know, that was out of the blue. Um, yes, yeah, Stan uh, Friedman, who, who did find him, uh, was uh, giving a lecture in the area, and uh, it, somebody brought Jesse to his attention. Uh, you know, Jesse didn't, in fact, seek Stan out. That's important to note. But somebody told him about Jesse, Marcel, and so he called him up, and uh, they talked, and Stan immediately realized, hey, <laughs> this is important, because here's a guy who, uh, you know, says he was in the military. They had to verify that, but, of course, he was back in Roswell, and that uh, he, he had not only learned about a crashed UFO, but he had participated in the recovery of a crashed UFO. Um, so Stan and a couple of colleagues, uh, you know, did some research and investigation, and they wrote a book in 1980, um, and that's what started uh, the Roswell, you know, almost craze for which has gone on since then, but uh, really peaked in the 1990s. Yeah, well, it it absolutely 
made Roswell uh, really a financial success, which they were sort of dying before this. And as far as that goes, they ought to have uh, some type of a monument to uh, Stan Friedman for, for that alone. But this begs another question. Stan was giving a lecture. So Roswell was on his mind prior to knowing about Jesse. No, no, not, not zero on his mind. He was giving his standard Stan Friedman uh, UFO guy lecture. But, I mean, um, so was he unaware of Roswell when he was giving the lecture? Absolutely. Wow. I, I was involved in the field then. All of us oh. were essentially unaware of Roswell. Fascinating. And boy, did it, it grow. Uh, you know, like you say, it's a little not quite as prevalent as it was maybe 20 years ago, but still. Now, let's talk about uh, J. Uh, Allen Hynek, because uh, he's a very fascinating character to me as far as that goes. And, of course, uh, did his graduate work at the University of Chicago as far as that goes. But uh, he was he was truly a scientist who, during the war, got a high security clearance. What an interesting thing to have. And I assume that that was the start of him maybe getting some insight into what's going on that we were unaware. Well, it allowed him to uh, to be vetted, as it were, uh, beforehand so that they could use him, the Air Force could use him on their projects. Um, he worked on something called the proximity fuse during World War II, and after that, uh, when he went back to doing astronomy, he was able to participate in high-altitude experiments using uh, V-2 rockets that had been uh, uh, captured from the Germans. Um, so he was always into high-tech and kind of working on the, the, you know, the area where you could use the latest technology um, you know, in the study of astronomy. But, yes, he had that security clearance, though it had lapsed after the war, but he was a, a known quantity. He was at Ohio State University then in uh, 1947 and 48. Um, close to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. Yeah. Um, and so his proximity and um, his, he was still a, a young professor, his uh, need for consulting money, to be quite frank, um, and uh, the fact that, yes, you know, people recommended him because of pa- past work uh, meant that the Air Force reached out to him and said, hey, would you like to help us? And the only thing they asked him to do initially was to look at UFO reports and see if there was an astronomical explanation. Fascinating. So they initially, at least, weren't trying to quash these stories. They were trying to figure out what might be behind them. So that yes, the, one, one of the really astounding things until lately, with the uh, Navy being so uh, and the government being so relatively open about the UFO subject, is that in the early days, which means the summer of 1947 through late 1948. The military, because that's really what, who was studying the subject, uh, took UFOs very seriously. They didn't initially think that they were extraterrestrial. Almost no one did, by the way. Polls that were done uh, in those, that early year or two, um, the topic of extraterrestrial just garnered a few percent in the polls of the public. Um, it was thought more likely to be something that, if it was real, was going to be something from the Russians or something like that, of some other technological advice. Um, So the military took it so seriously that the team at Wright-Patterson, composed of scientists and engineers and military officers, concluded in October or so of 1948 that not only were UFOs uh, real, but that possibly the explanation was extraterrestrial. 
And it's interesting because we saw, of course, that was around the time that uh, Kenneth Arnold, the private pilot in Washington State, saw the line of the flying saucers above the Cascades. And then the Air National Guard pilot, uh, I think it was Tom Mantell, uh, crashed uh, a a P-51 after chasing some object and, uh, I guess, passing out or something of this. So uh, now you have, at the same time, Roswell which, like you say, for four hours, everybody was fascinated, and then we were told it was a weather balloon. Why do you think that that one, because here they are theoretically embracing it, that one was the big cover-up? Well, it, it would have been a cover-up if, in fact, they, there was a crash and they recovered debris. And, and, and I might have covered it up myself back in 1947 if I was in the government because we wouldn't have known how to respond, how to react. There was, there was no precedent for this. Um, and so if there was a crash, uh, you know, again, it's hardly surprising that the, the military covered it up. Um, and why would it have had such an effect? Well, you know, that, that would be it. In, fa- in fact, um, there were headlines in the paper because the uh, air base in Roswell announced that they had recovered. Uh, they didn't use the word UFO, of course, flying right. disc. Uh, and then higher headquarters essentially countermanded that and, and, and said to the press, no, 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 it was a weather balloon. Um, but uh, the, the, really, the, the, uh, the whole key to whether or not the government has crashed saucers does go back to that event. And it's fascinating. And, of course, back to Wright-Patterson a minute, that's where, uh, uh, where Dr. Uh, Hynek was really involved in studying some of the information that was, that was there. And I, I think uh, he kind of concluded that there's more to this than meets the eye. Uh, at, at that point, the, uh, no pun intended, the uh, government seemed to go more into hyperdrive of, oh, nothing to see here. So Right. A- after the report in uh, 1948, uh, which was uh, sent up to higher headquarters and summarily sent back, Right. That we cannot conclude, no, that UFOs are extraterrestrial. The, the uh, project went into a uh, phase of debunking, um, and then it was reinvigorated after a massive wave of sightings in 1952, including over Washington, D.C. Yeah, the assault. Um, and it stayed um, very open to the subject for a short while. And then the, uh, the CIA had uh, a panel in January of 1953 that, uh, among other things, concluded that UFOs were potentially a danger to um, the, the uh, military and the government in terms of clogging reporting channels and confusing things so that we would not be able to detect an attack by the Soviets, uh, and that UFOs had to be debunked. Um, and they even talked about using the Disney company as part of that propaganda effort. Uh, and so from 1953 until 1969, when, when Project Blue Book, that, that Dr. Heineck was the consultant for, when they closed their doors, uh, Blue Book was essentially a public relations exercise. Mm. And, of course, Dr. Heine kind of straddled both worlds because he was uh, chair of the astronomy department at Northwestern, not exactly the the kind of place you would think that uh, some quote-unquote UFO nut was inhabiting. So, But at the same time, he continued, uh, you know, some very interesting contributions to to this. But you mentioned 1969, the closing Project Blue Book. What happens after that? 
what happens after that is that the uh, uh, two things, the uh, um, scientific community um, concludes because of what uh, actually happened, not just at Blue Book, but something called the, the Condon Report or the Colorado Project mm-hmm. Report that mm-hmm. that said that the, the UFOs, uh, you know, w- there was nothing really here to see, right. nothing unexplained. Um, so the scientific community could wash their hands of the subject. But with the Air Force out of action, um, those who were interested, like Dr. Hynek and, and uh, several others, said, okay, now the field's clear for us to get involved and to be more active, and that did happen. And so uh, in 1973, Dr. Hynek founded uh, our organization. And it's interesting, in 73, that's also where the, the kids in Pascagoula, the fishermen, uh, came up with their experience. And uh, I read where Dr. Hynek found himself questioning the very nature of reality. That's, that's fascinating because that's even larger than the study of, uh, of UFOs. So here he is uh, starting CUFOS, and what differentiates it, so I assume, by the way, it was the first uh, as far as uh, of study, uh, any formal study of UFOs. Well, there have been UFO groups almost since the word go, but we were uh, we'd look really the first scientifically oriented yeah. from the word go group. That, that's correct. Right, and also from that standpoint, and still around. So uh, based on science, uh, rather than, you know, woohoo notions of uh, people and their, and their craziness, uh, it's, it's fascinating because the organization has uh, continued. And, of course, you, for decades now, are certainly, uh, certainly the reason. Now, we talked before about, yeah, you can claim you saw a UFO now, which you probably couldn't do uh, in 1950, but other than that, how have things changed? Uh, well, that's a big question. Um, well, let first you, of all, let, let me start with how the phenomena has changed. Okay. Um, so what did people see back then? Well, they, you know, they saw discs, right, and mm-hmm. UFOs. And UFOs landed, and they left traces on the ground. And sometimes when they landed, people saw little humanoid beings or something even weirder by them though not typically a raccoon. Um, and so it, it was that type of thing where, where daylight sightings occurred and UFOs kind of appeared sometimes very close to people. UFOs were large sometimes, but typically they were more, you know, a 30 or typical 30 or 50-foot UFO. Um, and then around 1980 or so, the UFO phenomena began to change. And... First, people saw larger objects, often triangular and boomerang-shaped. Now, they still see disks. They still see balls of light. But there's a higher percentage of those. Secondly, UFOs started to uh, keep their distance from us. There were fewer landings. There were fewer interactions with people since then. And there were more sightings at night, and that's continued, than during the day. Um, and there were also sightings where they, despite what I've just said about, I kept their distance and all that, they, they were almost more visible at times, the famous Hudson Valley sightings mm-hmm. north of New York City, where a large triangular UFO was seen by literally thousands of people at one time, or the Tinley Park case here in, in the southern suburbs of, uh, of Chicago in 2004, mm-hmm. 2005 
where uh, triangular red lights were seen again by thousands of people on a, the first one on a beautiful summer evening in in August of 2004. So you know, because what's most important, what's changed is is the phenomenon itself, and and those are some of the ways that it's changed. We we of course don't know why, but it is very intriguing, and I we can't think of reasons why those things would have have, have uh, um, how the phenomenon has morphed yeah. based on something that we're doing, you know, that humanity is doing. We think there's something external that's driving those changes. Oh, that's fascinating. We're talking to Mark Rodiger. Got any questions? He's got a lot more answers than I do, so call now, 888-876-5593. It's 8888-RALEIGH on WGN Radio. WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James. We'll forego a bumper since we only have a few minutes left with Mark Rodiger from the Center for UFO Studies. And you can check that out and should, by the way, at C-U-F-O-S and, uh, .org, by the way. And uh, we were in the middle. And I'll get your calls. Rod in Wisconsin is calling. And so I won't be long-winded on this. But we were in the middle of uh, talking about, okay, more sightings at night, more visible sightings, but not necessarily more interactive. In fact, if anything, less interactive. And the thing that I wonder about, uh, Mark, is whether that there is interest in us because we're hitting a point technologically where we could maybe be a problem? Uh, possibly. If, uh, if an advanced civilization, uh, because of their own history and what they've studied possibly in other Places mm-hmm. uh, knows that we're close to attaining uh, space travel. Then uh, they would be monitoring us closely because of that, and that's that's been the I think the most promising hypothesis. You know, not that they're here to save us, no. uh, but that in fact they know that we're near a tipping point yeah. uh, in a development. Yeah, I would agree. I never thought they were here to save us. The question is, is it that, or are we breakfast? We've got Rod in Wisconsin. Welcome to WGN Radio. Yep, thank you again, Raleigh. I called the other night to, I guess, to say my dad was in the Navy World War II. He was in uh, dive bombers, and well, TBM first and then dive bombers. Anyhow, he said the, after missions, the pilots kind of stuck to themselves, but it didn't take long that the word come out, and they had to put a handle on these things, and they called them Foo Fighters. Yeah. I don't know if they... F-U or F-O-O, yeah. and uh, our neighbors flew night missions with that newer plane. It was a Black Widow, Deep 61, with the advanced radar. And uh, those were encountering U- UFOs, the unidentified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, interesting. They just came up with the- Interesting you say that. There is a Nazi Foo Fighter on display, obviously not a real one, uh, a a representation, right at the International UFO Museum in Roswell. So if you can, get there and look at it. Well, yeah, if I ever get get there, I I doubt I will. But uh, Mm -hmm. I saw a triangle, too, something that I cannot explain. I took my, and I dipped my arm, and I told my dad about it, and I took my arm, whole length in the thumb. So what I did was I said, figured, well, how big was this thing? And uh, and I said, well, okay, 100 yards, it would have been a half a mile away. Mm-hmm. And I said, the further away, obviously, more people would have had a chance to see it, obviously. The, the bigger it was, the further away, you know. And uh, it was a triangle that just came down slowly, never changed speed, red, three red lights, and it came down about a 20-degree angle, and it just kind of slowly disappeared behind the 
the tree line, you know, and then you, that halo just kind of slowly dissipated. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what that was. That was 1977 or 78. And you'll never forget it. Thank you for calling, Rod. We're running out of time, but I appreciate it. And I bet you, Mark, that you get a ton of anecdotal interest like that for folks who want to take part in CUFOS.org. I know you don't take members, but there's a lot at the site. Are you accepting these reports? Uh, we, We certainly are. We were very happy to do so. Well, terrific. Well, I think it's I think it's wonderful. It's a, a fascinating study, and uh, uh, hopefully, in at least some of our lifetimes, maybe the younger individuals listening will get to the bottom of this. But uh, good luck, and uh, let us know if anything uh, of great interest should surface. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, I'll do that. I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you.